You You are are now now listening listening to The The Black Black Spark, Spark, a podcast about actively balancing healthy relationships, mindful parenting, and mental and physical wellness in this this crazy crazy world. world. I guarantee that I will spark the the, the brain that will change the world. And that's our job, is to spark somebody else watching us. We got a special treat for y'all this week. Yes, this week we had the pleasure of doing an interview with Dr. Kiara King. She's an OBGYN based out of Chicago. Follow her on IG at Dr. Kiara King. Her page is all about fashion, health, and motherhood. We got to do a deep dive with her and explore the many different facets of race in the field of medicine. Yes, take a listen. Tell us a little bit about how you decided to become a doctor. My interest in becoming a physician really just stemmed from curiosity in childhood. And whenever I, I share this part of my story, I always say I'm going to date myself because um, I grew up in the area era of encyclopedias. <laughs> Me too. Always, same. Same. <laughs> I was always researching if I had a sore throat or if, you know, I had a scratch or if, you know, whatever, whatever it was, I would always go and find the encyclopedia. I would, you know, find edition D or T or you know, whatever it was. You remember yep. you'd have A through Z yep. and then you might have like an appendix and all that. Yep. Um, and so I would I would just get really curious. I would start looking things up. And so that was kind of my initial spark into deciding that I wanted to be a physician. And, you know, I had my share of childhood injuries and bumps and scrapes and bruises. Um, and I had to get stitches a few times here and there. And I think all of those things just kind of, you know, piqued my interest even further to have to encounter the medical setting at such a young age. I actually studied in the School of Kinesiology. Nice. And kinesiology is essentially mm-hmm. the study of the movement of the body. I ended up majoring in athletic training, which everyone always thinks is personal training, and it's not. Um, it's actually the, the study and the um, treatment of athletic injuries. So it was a very hands-on uh, major. I was actually learning how the body works versus some of the other majors. You know, you may be learning chemistry or biology at kind of the more cellular level, mm-hmm. but the, the way I was able to use my major with kinesiology, it was, it was more at the the growth level, like exactly how the body was working from the start. I changed my specialty choice while I was in medical school, actually. I thought I was going to want to do something that was more in line with athletic training, like uh, orthopedics or physical medicine and rehab or something like that. And once I actually ended up doing those rotations, I found that they just worked for me. I actually thoroughly enjoyed my OB-GYN rotation. I just love the variety within the, the single specialty. And I switched what I wanted to do with a specialty because I was like, I'm not going to go into a specialty and I'm really not feeling it. Mm-hmm. That's not going to serve anyone. This is so amazing because I actually wanted to be a medical doctor when I grew up. That was all. Mm-hmm. I was I actually said four things. I was going to be a singer, a dancer, a nurse, and a doctor. Wow. <laughs> wow. I eventually narrowed it down to doctor and I said, okay, I'm definitely going to go into obstetrics and then Uh-oh. I saw how much y'all have to pay for um, malpractice I was like mm. oh, malpractice. <laughs> 
felt, mm, I don't know about that. But I did go to undergrad um, taking all the pre-med rec- prerequisites. Uh-huh. And I also didn't do a typical pre-med um, major. I did sociology. Uh-huh. But I was like, let me just take uh-huh. these prerequisites. Um, yeah. And then I started really thinking, just like you, when you got into the kinesiology and the athletic training, you start thinking, like, is this really what I want to do for real, for real? Mm-hmm. Right. I did the same thing. And I was like, you know, I don't want to be an obstetrician anymore. So many yeah. other people in my family have hypertension, diabetes. Maybe I'll be a cardiologist. And then uh-huh. I even started thinking about that. And I'm like, you know, I'm this is just blunt Nia, me just being blunt and tactless. I was like, I'm just... <laughs> I'm just going to be sitting in my office as a cardiologist telling overweight people to eat well and stop smoking, exercise, and they're not going to do it. They're just going to keep coming back to me for higher prescriptions of, you know, blood pressure lowering medication. I was like, that's just not going to fill my spirit. I don't think I'm, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't think that's going to work for me. So actually, I became a chiropractor. So I know exactly what you're talking about in terms of kinesiology and the differences between athletic training and PT and OT and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely. So, um, so tell us a little bit about healthcare disparities mm-hmm. and when did that start? I mean, the answer to almost everything is slavery, but... <laughs> <laughs> in the black community, when would you say that we started noticing um, the healthcare disparities? Hmm. It's kind of a hard question to answer, not because they don't exist. They obviously do since forever. I don't know if there's any other way to really answer that, is that they've always been there. Mm-hmm. Um, they just have. They've, all, they've always been there. I mean, healthcare at one point wasn't even for us. Like, Black folks didn't used to even go to the doctor. You'd have to nearly be dying because it wasn't something that was necessarily accessible to us. But absolutely, they, at least in the United States, the disparities 100% beca- began during enslavement, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, enslaved people were used for medical experimentation, point blank. You know, so the disparities, at least in this country, for black people starts there and there's no way to get around that it that it started there in present day the effects you know of slavery are absolutely still playing out yes Yes. so i I think honestly our people have noticed and seen it the entire time Mm -hmm. you know we've been able to use our voice and our voices being heard and amplified um especially in more present days that people are actually hearing and believing what has transpired against so many black people but the disparities have always been there i would also add to it and say that yes while they began there our challenges physically have been exacerbated and compounded in the years Uh after it you know so yeah i appreciate you being fully transparent about about your assessment of it because that makes sense to us yeah so during medical school or residency, how did race show up in patient treatment and clinical data? Yeah, I'll give a concrete. I know that many black women have stated and studies have shown that doctors don't necessarily believe that a black woman is in pain until it gets to a certain level. And then like, oh, okay, she's clearly in need when she was suffering and needed some form of earlier treatment intervention earlier. One thing I can specifically recall is sitting in, in Grand Round and hearing someone describe certain comorbidities and describing how they were more prevalent in, you know, black and Hispanic communities. And I just, I remember thinking, 
why. There's always the, mm-hmm. these things are more prevalent in these communities, and which may, you know, be true depending on what data you're looking at, um, what area of the country you're looking at, but why? Yeah, and I definitely I feel like they don't like, they don't delve into that enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that which is something that stands out. Like I can clearly they were sitting in that auditorium and you know looking at the, the, the presentation on the screen, and I just wanted to be thinking, like, the why? Like, and the, the why wasn't necessarily addressed, at least at that particular point in time. Mm-hmm. I think we, my people, as, as, you know, people in healthcare have often had to do the searching on the why. Now it's become much more of an interest. You know what I mean? Now it's like, it's like the cool thing to do to mm-hmm. get these mm-hmm. answers, you know, or yeah. maybe... Before, it was just kind of like, oh, black people have a higher incidence of diabetes and high blood pressure. Well, it's like, well, no, not all black people do, but maybe some do. But let's look at the why as to why those some do. Because, again, not all black folks have high blood pressure and diabetes and high cholesterol and all of these preventable comorbidities. Uh, But let's talk about food deserts. Let's talk about redlining. Let's Mm -hmm. talk about, you know, of those things that actually lead to, you know, it's not necessarily just genetics. But right. if you live in an area that doesn't have access to, you know, quote-unquote high-quality food, if you are in an area where there's a fast food restaurant on every single corner, but the nearest grocery store to get fresh produce mm-hmm. is eight miles away, and maybe you don't have transportation or unreliable transportation, what are you going to eat? You're going to eat, because you got to eat. You're going to eat mm-hmm. what's closest to you and, more, and what's most readily available. And so those are the things that, you know, that I think we need to to focus on is the why that those things are. We're not just predisposed to have blood pressure and diabetes, but if you grow up in a family and, you know, all they eat is this, this, or that, and then then that's what you learn to eat and that's what you learn to cook, and then you have children and that's the way you know how to cook Mm -hmm. or prepare food, then now your children are eating like that. Or that's all you have access to. Maybe you don't have enough money to get to, you know, a good some good produce, good vegetables. You you might not have access to that for generations. Mm-hmm. So it looks yeah. like it's genetic. It looks like, oh, it just and, runs in my family. And, you know, it's interesting because when the people are presenting, you know, their grand rounds or a presentation, I mean, they're certainly not trying to, to uh, marginalize anybody or, you know, come off a certain way. But I, just, I remember sitting there being like, so why? Like, everybody's supposed to label black folks as, they got high blood pressure, diabetes, da 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 da. But let's talk about the actual why. So I think I think that that um, was something that I could have recalled specifically. But you know, when it comes to like the like the ob side of things, I remember we had a black medical student, black female medical student, and she was in uh, on a surgery. And in, in some gynecologic surgery, you will have an assistant that is kind of between the patient's legs. And they may manipulate, like in hysterectomy, they may manipulate the uterus. And mm-hmm. when I say manipulate, they move it around so that the surgeon can have a better view from mm-hmm. up top. Mm-hmm. And um, so our, the monitors were labeled as master and slaves. What? Which is, what, yes. And, and honestly, it was probably like that in a lot of in a lot of operating rooms. Yeah, it was probably like that in a lot of operating rooms, like all around the country, probably. Mm-hmm. But they were labeled as master and slave. Yeah. And I again, I've heard the great time, but um, I, there was an incident, and I, one of the 
pretending was basically like, can you move the slave from between the legs? Oh, my God. And the student was sitting in between the legs, and she was like, what? Did you what? probably not realizing, obviously, how inappropriate the labels were. But you know, so I, 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 I know she took it back because we, like, you know, we heard about it. And she took it took it back to the student coordinator, and they, you know, and I want to say after that day, I think they changed the the label. Oh, good um, job then! Congratulations, on, changed the label, the, crazy. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, stuff like that, but that, that stuff has probably been labeled like that for so long. So and he, it's like, who thought who thought to label that like that? Like who? You so yeah. let me can I let me, can I jump in real quick so that's and yeah. that's a perfect segue that's part of what we talk about a lot is the underlying the underpinning mentality or the the paradigm in the ether of our community and so like of our society I mean and so like those kinds of things were never considered until that moment and then like oh I probably shouldn't be using master and slave terminology anymore yeah you think <laughs> we, and I know that's a that's a that's a tech thing I've heard that in other settings and it's just not thought about and every time I see it I'm like dude why does this exist so segueing segueing from that perfect example you provided um we want to speak a little bit i promise you we're talking about positive things but i want to are looking for your insights into some some of the things that we understand about the medical industry right and so i believe that there's a discrepancy in black women dying in labor right and so can you speak to some of the things going on like why the bedside treatment is different possibly for black women versus others yeah so Black maternal mortality rate is, is higher in this country. It's racism. It's implicit bias. I mean, that, that's it at, at its core. And, I mean, it's, in terms of a, a, a short, <laughs> quick answer. Yep, short that's, answer. A, that's cool. That's a... <laughs> it, it, it's, you know, it's racism and implicit bias. It's not, it's not hearing women, but you're, you're not hearing them because maybe you've been dismissive to them because you don't really believe that they're truly in pain or... You dismiss their symptoms because, oh, that's just something really common in pregnancy. And so you kind of dismiss that symptom, but you also dismiss everything else that the woman has just said that may actually be something concerning. You know, even though she had one thing that was, that was pretty normal. Um, and I think when, when those things happen, when, those, when women are dismissed, when women are not heard, when women are not believed, it's to... It's to our detriment. So what can patients do, particularly black and brown patients, what can we do to advocate for ourselves to make our caregivers listen? I think a couple of things. I've talked a lot about self-advocacy, you know, from a patient standpoint. And I think one of the biggest things is just knowing that you have a voice. Knowing mm -hmm. that this is not, it should not be a paternalistic setup. Like we talked about the whole paternalism, like the doctor comes in, they say, this is your diagnosis, this is what we need to do. And then you're like, okay, you know, and then turn around and walk and you're like, what just happened in there? You know, this should be a collaborative effort. So knowing that your voice has value and to use your voice, that's, that's one. Right. They're the authority of their specialty. They know what they know, but you're coming to them to get answers about how they can help your situation. So knowing that you have a voice, asking questions. Again, these all are super, super basic, but I have had patients who have apologized for asking questions. And I look at them and they're crazy, like, why are you apologizing? Like, you're literally <laughs> here to ask questions. But again, that goes back to paternalism. Yes. They have probably been in a space 
where they have asked, tried to ask questions before and been shut down. Yep. And so now that here they come to me thinking they have to apologize and preface their question with an apology. And I'm like, girl, I mean, I can't tell you you're going to ask 200 questions, but you're here so we can figure whatever it is out. You yes. know, I little talk to patients just like that. I mean, you know, we end up becoming like best friends. And then I would also say, you know, in terms of how to advocate is, you know, you know, these days and times are a little different in terms of, you know, being able to bring people to visit with you and stuff like that. But I would say bring a family member with you or, you know, ask if you can have a family member FaceTime or call in to be, to quote unquote, be there with you, although may, they may not yeah. physically be there. Um, but to have another set of ears listening, to have another mouth that may be able to ask questions if you forget. But if you're coming in with a concern or an issue, absolutely write down some of those questions before you go in so that you won't be afraid. You'll say, you know what? I have some questions. Let me just look at my list so I don't forget anything. I don't forget to ask my most pressing questions. Another thing is not being afraid to get a second opinion. Mm -hmm. Again, this is your life. I tell my patients all the time, you get one body, you get one life. You need to feel 100% comfortable with the decisions that you are making about your body and about your life. So if you don't feel comfortable for some reason with the person that you've just seen who's just provided care to you, if this doesn't feel like a good fit, that's okay. Maybe they just want the, the doctor for you. It's okay to find another doctor. You don't feel like you have to be, um, or don't feel like you have to be stuck in that, you know, that doctor-patient relationship if it's not, if it's not fitting you. And one last thing I would like to say is it's probably not actually feasible for every black person to see a black doctor just from sheer number. But there's just, you know, there's just something about the ability to connect on a level outside of your medical issues. Yes. Where you can be like, this person looks like me. Yes. Oh, her hair is like mine. Well, I can ask her how she did her hair. Or I can ask her, you know, I talk to patients about macaroni and cheese recipes. <laughs> I mean, we talked about all kinds of stuff. And, you know, if patients want to, like, patients want to be seen as a person, not just like a, a random number a random case that has walked into your office and you're there to fix them. The goal is really to optimize your care through advocating for yourself and through partnering with a physician who, you know, really wants to help you live your best and most optimal life. You know, there are great physicians out there. There are great nurses out there. But then you have people who just, you know, they are, they have, again, implicit bias or racism. They, they would say that they're racist. They would say that they, you know, that they are taking care of all patients and they take care of all patients equally. But if you, you know, went back and maybe pulled the data and pulled the charts, you might find otherwise. Yeah, um, that's why it's called implicit bias, because you can't see it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think two of the major cases that um, this was made so high profile and public in was the Serena Williams case where she basically had to fight to get the doctor to understand that something is wrong here. <laughs> I just had this baby and something is not something is not right, you know, um, and people yeah. are like, even if Serena Williams <laughs> can't Man, get how much money for these doctors and yeah. can't get them to, has to fight for them to listen to her, then, you know, imagine just regular, regular black woman having a baby, how much we have to deal with. Mm. So that was one. And then the second one was recently, of course, with the COVID situation and Dr. Moore's death because those doctors did not believe her. So segueing into COVID, um, why, other than racism, which of course is the answer for most things, <laughs> why do we feel like it's hitting our community so hard? I mean, I think that's, I think that's a lot of things. I, like in the beginning, 
I specifically recall there being, I mean, there was so, there was so little known about it in the, like, when things happened, like, almost about a year ago. Right. Yeah, just about a year ago. And, you know, I remember the conversations of telling people to, like, stay home, only go in if it's really, 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 really bad. I've heard conversations of black people showing up to the ER and being turned away. Mm-hmm. I think we know a lot more now that, in theory, people should be treated, equi- you know, equitably, whether that's always happening, I don't know. So I, I think there was definitely that. I think there was, really, depending on the area where you live, your access to certain levels of care may or may not, you know, may change, I should say, depending on where you live. And so I think that has something to do with it. Um, I, I think in general, especially in the beginning, people were, like, not wanting people to go to the hospital, which I can get. Like, you're like, we, we have this new virus now. We don't know what it does. We don't know who it's going to affect. We don't know if I'm going to die. I'm not going to the hospital <laughs> to, you know, to see whatever, you know, whatever symptoms and investigate whatever symptoms I'm having. But I think, I think there's that. I think there's a general mistrust by some in the black community of the medical system, which, you know, rightfully so. There's, there's been a lot of atrocities against us over the years. But, I mean, I think it's, I think it's multifaceted. Um, I don't think you can pinpoint one thing about why it's directly impacting us. And so I think you have to take a look at it from that approach. And by no means am I a COVID expert by any means. <laughs> yeah, but I think, just, I, think it just, I think it just borders what we see in medicine in general. Yeah, I think that I mean I, I have a I have a close relative who um who was what I would be what I would consider um severely ill with COVID. She had severe um COVID symptoms and she refused to go to the hospital and I think that that was a blessing because this was back in um April back when we were just finding out Mm-hmm. just kind of like flailing <laughs> with what this thing was doing you know and so if she had gone she would have been placed on a ventilator for sure and I understand in the beginning they weren't using the ventilators very judiciously and it was causing a lot more harm than good mm-hmm. so I am glad for the stubborn blackness <laughs> that was like I'm not trying to go to nobody's hospital right now I will thug it out <laughs> in my house and that's what she did and she's here today to tell it because there were so many and we're from New York City so this relative is in New York City and so there are plenty there's plenty of yes it was really bad and they were just shoving ventilators down people's throats you know doing their best because we understand medicine is a practice mm-hmm. so it's, when, when this is a new virus this is something new just like AIDS we, we didn't know what was happening <laughs> and people I really feel like the population just needs to have a baseline general um education around anatomy and physiology what are what are medical emergencies that may not look like a medical emergency to you you know just general so that we're all on the same page and understanding that medicine is a practice we might not always get it on the first second third go round, but we're working towards it and you got to give people time to figure things out so yeah. yeah that was definitely true for that case but with dr moore she's a doctor herself laying up in the hospital yeah. bed and telling these other medical doctors look i need x y and z treatment protocol yeah. mm-hmm. and they're steady ignoring her i mean wow. what what is that about i don't know <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean yeah, yeah I, I, it, it was i mean i was watching it literally in real time to the part of some groups i was in 
and she was posting live updates to our group. Wow. And she literally went silent one day. And I mean, I, mean, I was praying for her the whole time. She was, she was isolated and alone in the hospital. Like, you know, didn't have any family members that were in, like, physically there with her. And so I think she took to social media as an outlet, as a way to stay connected. And so she was engaging on posts that, I, you know, that I saw. She engaged on my post. I made a comment, and then she came back, and, you know, she replied to the comment. And I was like, I'm praying for you. I'm so glad you, you know, posted this so that we could, you know, help to be your voice and help to get this information out and help to get your voice, you know, amplified. And, you know, I, it, it's hard to say because I, I don't, I would, I would never have practiced medicine the way that, I don't even want, want to say doctor, but the way that man did, because <laughs> it, was, it was lacking so much compassion. Yep. And if, if you can't compassionately care for your colleague who you know has gone through the exact same things that you have gone through in terms of the road and the journey to becoming a physician, if you can't care for them with compassion, mm. not that her life was, was worth more than anyone else's, because I don't want people like, well, everybody, everybody else's lives matter 100%. Yeah. But we're literally looking, like, if I have a colleague coming to me, they're trusting me as another physician mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to handle their care. Yep. And I don't take that lightly. And I don't take it lightly if anybody comes to me, because, again, they are trusting me with their care. Yeah, I'm going to give my, all my patients the best, but, you know, if you can't care for them, compassionately like why are you even even in this so, you know mm-hmm. i saw a lot of a lot of different talk online and i'm not here i'm not here to to badmouth anyone or you know you know say slander this man or anything like that but i do i do know that there has to be some compassion lacking if you like literally if i had if i had another physician who was not working on the front line coming in to see me like, I want them to get back to their family. 100%. I want them to get back to being whole. I want them to get back. I want them to heal. And it just, you know, I, I can't imagine someone being so heartless yep. that they would deny pain medication for someone who's actively in pain, that they would refuse imaging. And this is not someone just coming and saying, hey, can you do an x-ray of my foot? <laughs> I just injured my shoulder. She's asking for the treatment that is supposed to be given for this condition. Yeah. She's not it asking for anything was, out of the out of the blue. Yeah, it wasn't something that was totally off base. Like, mm-hmm. well, okay, well, we normally wouldn't do an X-ray of your foot to check your shoulder. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And at least from her words, you know, there was just a lot of there was a lack of compassion. There was a lack of uh, collegiality. The lack of of trying to work in partnership with your patient. You know, we don't call it the art of medicine for no reason. Like, it's an art because not every patient is going to present the same. Not every patient is every patient is not the same. And so we have to deal with each patient and figure out their case and things can get tweaked for each patient so that person can optimize their particular care. And I think that is what it was for that there was a complete lack based on Dr. Moore's own words, of there trying to be any compassion or compromise or help. And it's like, how can you do that to your colleagues? And, and, you know, obviously with him being a white male physician, you know, absolutely the concern about racism comes into play. Like, Mm -hmm. 
you know, had this been a white woman position, a white man position, would he have treated them the same? I mean, we'll never know mm-hmm. at this point. And sadly, we had to find out, you know, after more, you know, how this all played out. And it's just awful. I'm glad you touched on so many of those points because what I learned in my practice and what I tell pretty much every patient on the first visit I know the body. I know nothing about your body, <laughs> you know? And so I, I need to treat you as a specific person. So you're you're a partner in this care. I can't mm-hmm. do it all, you know? I'm yeah. not here with any kind of magic pills or magic stretches or magic adjustments that's going to make it you, you 100% better. You know, this is your body. I'm here to teach you what I know about it and to help you be able to learn how to take care of it yourself. But you have to tell me, you had however X 20, 30, 40 years of living in it. So you got to tell me, (laughs) you got to tell me what's going on. And I think just having that, having that humility, you know, is extremely important. And I think there are many doctors out there who, you know, take, come from the expert stance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So very paternalistic. Yes. Very paternalistic. And I think historically medicine was, was built on paternalism. Like you went, you went to a doctor, they told you what they were going to do and, and you were like, Okay, and, you know, I mean, in medical school, we learned about, you know, paternalism and beneficence and um, autonomy and all those types of things, and and the same as you, I tell patients all the time, um, you do with your body every single day. Mm-hmm. You know your body better than I ever will. Yep. So, you know, we, we have to make sure that we are hearing people. You know, it has to be a collaborative, um, yes. Yes. domestic collaborative effort. What do you feel like physicians of color are doing right now to shrink the gap in treatment that black and brown communities um, receive versus white communities or, or others? Yeah. Honestly, I think, I think we're doing what we've always done. I think the issue has come into more of the public spotlight. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. Honestly, like in general, I, you know, I, I want to make no, no roles to generalizations, but um, but, like, black folks, we always going to take care of us. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. we're always going to be like, look, listen, I know that eating a certain type of way is really good. Listen, you're not going to be around in mm-hmm. 20 years yep. if this is how you continue to treat your body. I think, in general, black physicians do a great job advocating for black patients. Everybody else to do that. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, the weight, the weight has been on our shoulders. Always. And there's only 2% of us, but we are not the majority of physicians that are seeing black and brown patients. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it can't, it can't just be on us. Everybody else needs to get it together. And I say that <laughs> respectfully. Yes. But that people need to do implicit bias training, do anti-racism training, educate yourself. Don't just say, oh, that doesn't exist anymore. You know, slavery is over. No, but the vestiges of slavery still exist today yep. and are still impacting how black people are are treated in the, med- in the medical setting. There's only 2% of our black physicians and 5% total men and women combined. Wow. So that means 95% of physicians are not black. You know, so for us, for us to be the only answer, while I know that we are in fact a viable and amazing solution to many of the health disparities, there, you know, there obviously needs to be more of us. There needs to be more black physicians, so we need more black, you know, applicants to medical schools and black, you know, um, 
predominantly black physicians going to residency and completing residencies and things like that. But other people need to get it together. And, <laughs> yep. I mean, that is, that's just it's the true. Thing. Like, we it's true. We cannot bear the... That, that's just like the whole like Black Lives Matter thing. Like, yep. Black people have been knowing police brutality has has existed. Yep. We've been knowing, we've been saying it, we've been yelling it from the rooftop since forever. It's other people that are finally waking up like, oh, I didn't realize it was actually that bad. Well, duh, people yeah. have been saying this forever. We've been your telling y'all forever. And, and, and your ears weren't open. Not at so all. They need to be the ones that, you know, that that wake up, that, that begin to educate their own community, that, you know, begin to do anti-racism training for this to take to even have even broader impact. That is beautiful. Well, thank you so much. This has been such an amazing oh, conversation. Welcome. We really love this. Tell our fans, tell our listeners, tell everyone where to find you and what you're doing, what you're up to. So you can find me, you can find me on my blog, on my website, it's drkiaraking.com. You'll book me most days around Instagram. Um, and my Instagram is at D-R-K-I-A-R-R-A-K-I-N-G. Pretty much across all social media, I'm Dr. Kiara King. And... Yeah, I'm gonna have. I'm working on some different projects this upcoming year. Um, I had a really great 2020, despite of everything that was going on. And so I just, I hope and I believe that 2021 is going to be even greater. So, I love it. Yes. Come, come find me and check me out. What's going on? Thanks for checking us out. Remember to follow us on Instagram at the Black Spark Podcast. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five star review wherever you're listening.